1: interested in the the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church.
0: The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature.
1: What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man.
0: The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done.
1: Hi, this is Colleen. I wanted to mention a few things before we get to this week's episode. On our episode on Parenting in the Pews, we announced that we would be releasing several books. We have now released two different sermon notes, notebooks for children. There's one for younger children and then one for a little older children. I will link both of those in the episode notes. On our social media, we have posted pictures of the inside of each of those journals. We also have released catechism and scripture memory books. Those are now available and will soon be available also on Kindle. We have some Bible reading plan journals and some prayer journals, and those are either available now or will be available soon. If you follow any of our social media, we will post any updates there. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And today we're going to be finishing up our series on the church. I'm not even sure how many episodes it's been, but we've hit a lot of different topics from covenant theology, to theonomy, to men and women in the church, and periodically we get questions in the group, or we get questions sent to us by email, so we're going to address the questions that came in um, regarding this episode, so I'm going to address the first couple, and then I'm going to have Rachel do a couple. The The first couple came in about theonomy, and I actually emailed Chris and Todd since they were our guests on that episode and so the answers that I got from them is what I'm going to share the first question is what's the difference between theonomy and reconstructionism and I got this answer from Chris Cahi. Uh theonomy is focused on the application of old covenant civil judicial law to all civil governments of all times and all places whereas Christian Reconstructionism wants to add libertarian, that is, Austrian, he says, economic principles. That's the difference in a nutshell. Theonomy is only interested in economics insofar as it is specifically addressed in Old Covenant civil judicial law. Christian Reconstructionism wants to add Austrian economics, which began as a school of economics in the 19th century, to theonomy. So. Hopefully that answers the question. I will uh, see if I can find any resources I can include on the episode notes. And then the other question we got was, is theonomy primarily an American movement or do you find it in other countries? So Todd sent me a link to a a very interesting little article from the Aquila Report and that will answer that question. Because what he said is if I wrote up my answer, it would match this this link, so I'm going to include that in the episode notes. Uh, it's a very interesting article because it talks about what what is the attraction to theonomy, and it, it makes a a pretty good case that it's really an American movement. And you know, I was telling Rachel before we recorded um, that my husband and I have even been talking about this: how many things in the churches today that really are just very American. And I've been talking to several people outside the country. It's been very, very fascinating. Rachel, I'm going to pass on to you to do question three.
0: Sure. Sure. Uh, this episode comes, or the question comes, I'm guessing, about um, from the, the episodes that we did talking about men and women in the church. Uh, the question is, I'd really love if on the next episode on this topic, y'all could specifically talk about 1 Corinthians 14.35, which says, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And she says, I've studied this topic a good bit, but I've always had various views of what this specific verse means and how to impl- implement it. Uh, It is a really good question. There are several verses uh, in the New Testament, especially as Paul is talking to the church about how to do things uh, that you get these uh, verses about what is appropriate for behavior in church and for women in church. Um, I wrote about this in one of my chapters in my book, but I'll summarize um, what I said there. Paul has three uh, sections of scripture where he talks about uh, aspects of worship and uh, the dangers of disruption. You see it in First Corinthians eleven to fourteen, in First Timothy two to five, and Titus one to three. And what Paul is concerned about is that everything should be done decently and in good order. And he wants men and women in the early church, he wanted them to behave appropriately in corporate worship. Um, There shouldn't be disruptions. Uh, Congregations should avoid false teaching and dissension. Women should dress in a way that doesn't draw inappropriate attention to themselves. Wives shouldn't dishonor their husbands. Uh, Women should learn quietly, respectfully, with self-restraint. So, while we don't know exactly what was going on in these early churches, there are a couple different approaches that commentators take. Uh, One that I think is um, the most compelling, the one that seems to make the most sense is one that I've read from several commentators, uh, that because churches were meeting in private homes, there was confusion about what behavior was appropriate within the church. Um, and so, Paul is addressing some of those things. One uh, commentator, David Garland, wrote, women may have felt more comfortable in a home setting and were more expressive in certain behaviors permissible at home, however, were out of place in the church. So, and what he's saying there is that Paul didn't want the behavior in church to reflect badly on, on Christianity and on the church, and so, while outsiders could possibly be offended because of the gospel, as Paul talks about, they shouldn't be unnecessarily offended by the way Christians were acting within church. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, in Paul's culture, respectable married women wore their hair covered in public, and so then you have a question about what do you do in church, and so Paul addresses some of that. Um and so, when Paul says to women that they should learn quietly, or that's from 1 Timothy 2, or keep silent in the churches from 1 Corinthians 14, his concern then is about disruptive behavior. Um, what Paul is concerned about seems to be disruptions that would arise if women were teaching men or asking questions during the discussions of prophecies in the corporate worship. And so then they're told to ask their husbands at home when it's not a disruption um another commentary uh, philip towner has a commentary on first and second timothy and what he says is that when paul instructed men and women Uh, in these churches, the immediate problem was disturbances in the worship service. On the one hand, changing attitudes about the man-woman relationship led women to assert themselves in the worship service in ways that threatened unity and perhaps also reflected a disregard for biblical and cultural distinctions between men and women. Um, So, what you see is that Paul is drawing upon certain materials in such cases in order to restore peace to the community by encouraging appropriate behavior. And that's what Towner writes. Um, He also says, his instructions are given in two parts. First, they encourage cooperative behavior among men in the worship service in relation to the specific task of prayer. This would be in the first Timothy passage. And then second, women are instructed concerning appropriate dress and then concerning appropriate behavior in the worship setting in relation to teaching. So, all of the discussion there really revolves around that what we do in worship should be decently and in good order. And um, it's, it's not teaching that women um, have to go to their husbands if they have theological questions and can't go directly to their pastor or elders. It's not teaching that husbands have to be Resident theologians in the home, uh, certainly there are many women who have more interest in theology than their husbands and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and women have in our in our churches women have a direct relationship with their uh, leadership of the church and can go to them and ask questions. and I think that we have
1: seen some people that interpret this in I think almost a dangerous way, whether it be, Uh, Those that teach a husband is prophet, priest, and king. And when he's priest, he essentially becomes the mediator between the wife and God. And I have even heard a story from someone that uh, their church said that a a woman could not go to the pastor and elders. Um, She had to go to her husband, and her husband could go to the pastor and elders if he needed to, if he was unable to answer her question. So we have seen some things that have come out of a wrong understanding of that passage. So the next one, I think probably Rachel and I can probably both um, uh, input some things. This came from our Parenting in the Pews episode, and it was in our group, and I told her we'd answered on this episode. She said, I understand the absurdity of saying that every baby's cry is sinful manipulation. I think the hosts evaluated that well, but I wish they would had expounded because I have seen Overcorrection which says children can't sin until such and such an age um, and even denying that children are born with a sinful nature and i've even seen some pa- I, this is me talking now i've seen some some even um, parenting methods which which do tend to um, get original sin wrong I would say you know one of the things one of my I remember when my oldest was uh, at probably about three and a half And um, he, w- he was a bright child And I remember my friend Who had children older than me She said oh you are You are at a good place Because you can reason with him now He can understand more When you say this is wrong And so I think there is something There is a switch that kind of happens At that point An eight month old you You can't say crying is wrong Stop it <laughs> You know um, if they're whining for something, and and I think that there's probably some some cause and effect. You know, if your child is whining for a toy, then don't give him the toy, um, because then he will learn, oh, if I just whine, I'll I'll take that toy. But I think I do I do think we should recognize the sin, but I think we have to be really careful about what sort of discipline that we do on someone young that is unable to reason and understand. Um, some of those things i'll see what you have to say rachel on that
0: um yeah i think mainly you're right there is an overcorrection like with most issues you have ditches on both sides so you can either take the approach that you know our children are born without sin and they become sinners at a certain age or you can go the other way and say you know everything that your child does is sinful there has to be a balance between you know, how we view our children and how we raise our children. We can recognize that, yes, they are sinners, just like we are. But then, just like we treat, we know that everyone around us is a sinner, we don't treat everyone with suspicion about everything that they do, right? So, you know, you you interact with your friends, with your colleagues, with your, your spouse, with your family members, with people at church, in ways where you assume the best of their behavior. And I think that we can even do that with our children um, without being... Um, Without being naive, we can hope that our children are, are doing well and obeying us and being uh, loving and appropriate in their interactions and what they and genuine and what they want or need. Um, while also recognizing that when they are clearly disobeying that we have to address that. Um, but you know we've talked about this before. It's, I think it's important that we recognize the difference between um, willful sin and childish behavior and that we do not expect our children to do more than is appropriate for their age. Um, And we shouldn't punish for things that are simply a reflection of they are a child and this is all that they can actually deal with and handle at this age. And we had talked
1: about, I've always found it almost ironic, we had talked about the Pearls Parenting Program on that episode, and they believe in pretty harsh discipline at a very, very young age, very young. Um, even though they don't, they don't believe in original sin. And so, it, which I think is just kind of fascin- fascinating that they have this harsh dealing with sin, even though they do not, they would probably interpret a lot of things as sin that may even not be sin. I've, I personally am uncomfortable with some of the parenting programs that are um, encouraging a harsh, even sometimes physical discipline of a baby. So that's that's my two cents on that one. You know, Rachel, I like, I like your point about not assuming the worst about our children. And I think I almost feel like some of the parenting programs almost teach you to do that. Um, somebody had asked me, is the idea you must obey joyfully, is that okay? And I'm even a little bit uncomfortable with that because sometimes I'm grumpy or sad or not feeling like doing something joyful. And I think we sometimes have almost unrealistic expectations on our children that we would not have on others. Um, so when we got this one in an email. We got this one in an email, and this was actually from someone that lives in another country. And it says, In the recent podcast on membership vows and ordination, and in other episodes too, you mentioned that only ordained men should be preaching on Sundays. What about laymen who are training to be pastors? Is this an exception that you um, would be willing to make uh, until they're, or you think only when they are fully ordained should they preach? This, and I would say this isn't actually our view. This is the view of our churches, that our churches hold. Uh, We had talked before about how, how strongly we value that um, when ordained officers preach on Sunday mornings that there is a sort of authority there, that they have been examined, that they are qualified to be in that position.
0: But it is true that even within that, uh, that men who are uh, in seminary or have have come under uh, care of a presbytery, uh, as a um, license it is usually the word used, um, they are often allowed uh, to to speak um, either at a, a Sunday service or an evening service or um, in ways to practice and to prepare for their their training. Um, but even with that, th- those are still peop- men who have been um, set aside, uh, set apart, um, that their uh, calling into ministry has been recognized by, um, by a presbytery, and it, it's still it's not the same as, as any layman. Uh, preaching. That's a great point point. and it, if
1: somebody is in that, in that position then the pastors that are over them do believe that they are qualified for, you know that they will be qualified for ministry at some point or they wouldn't be in that position. I, I think part of it too though I was thinking is that a lot of it has to do with um, what we believe about the church so uh, and Amy even has talked about this a little bit um your church ecclesiology is going to affect how you think about some mm-hmm. of these things.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Like a bap, you know, a Baptist church that has a very different um I think I had mentioned I that my friend told me she's just been in independent, I guess SBCs cuz they're autonomous churches and she goes, "Oh, they're just ordained by the church or something like that." I don't really know what the process is. It's it's just a it's just a very different doctrine of the church, I think, in general.
0: Right. And just when we're talking about, as as you said, we're talking from our particular uh, church ecclesiology, our particular confessions and standards that we, withhold, we hold to. So, we're speaking from that.
1: Yeah, I, I was actually thinking when we had Eric and Elise on, in fact, um, I think he was talking, Eric was talking about even like female deacons, which, um, where he was talking about how even within what somebody believes about deacons, like the RPCNA, which is a very conservative denomination, has deaconesses, but they aren't um, ordained like an el- pastor or elder. And so there's just a lot of things um, that you have to, I think, figure out with your local church um, based on your own doctrine of the church. So we just got this one yesterday. She says, I'm sifting through the arguments regarding what women are and are not permitted to do in church services, what be silent means. There's a lot out there, so I'm trying to be balanced and thorough. Who may read scripture aloud? Who may lead worship or sing in front of the congregation? Who may offer prayer in opening or closing? I've heard compelling things for those people to be only ordained elders, so men. But I've heard discussions on why various parts of the service might be performed by the laity as well. (laughs) <laughs> Do you have any thoughts,
0: Rachel? <laughs> Opening a right. can of worms. It's, it right? is a very good question, and it is one that I think a lot of uh, churches and denominations even are wrestling with right now. Um, I, I will say I am not dogmatic about the answers to this. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if you're in a denomination where um, all of these are, roles are held by ordained by the ordained men and that is what um, what your church does I wouldn't fight it I wouldn't be you know arguing against it because I think it's a place for us to uh, as congregation members to be um, submissive to our our leadership if this is what they think is correct you know um, for example you know like you talked about deacons and deaconesses um, in both the PCA and the OPC uh, deacons are are men there are not, Uh, ordained deaconesses. And, you know, there are people who think that maybe women could be deaconesses but not ordained deaconesses and those kinds of discussions. But um, because our denominations um, define the role of deaconess and ordained ministry, then that's not something I'm going to fight against, right? Um, I think that's an appropriate definition and then that's what we're going to work with. But when you get down to some of the other things, you know, going back to the First Corinthians fourteen passage, when it does say, you know, women should be silent and, and uh, ask their husbands at home. Before that, it talks about women prophesying, right, in church, and that seems to have been what exactly that was. I don't know. And uh, there's there are different understandings of what that could have been. So even Paul there he's not contradicting himself, so he must be talking about two different things. Something is going on where women are not, like, utterly silent in church. So, how do we balance that? How do we look at what are appropriate ways for laymen and laywomen to participate in the the service? Um, some churches have taken to having um, laymen and women uh, pass the offering plates, for example, or read a scripture or um, you know, many of our churches have um, uh, people will sing like offertory or special music, or or lead the singing, and and they use the word leading as in they stand up and keep the music and the words together, <laughs> the instruments and the people singing together. Uh, I think leading is an inappropriate uh, or gets misused there, misinterpreted, um, and and there are things like that that I. I could see an argument for um, laymen and women participating in, Um, but again, it's not something that I'm dogmatic and fighting about and trying to get things changed. Um, I'm willing to to submit to what the leadership of our church says on these issues and uh, to do as they think is think best. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good answer. And in the OPC.
1: generally speaking, it's the um, pastor and elders that, that lead all of the service. I, I don't know, I haven't read all of the PCA book, and church, book of church order in a while, so I'm not exactly sure what the standard is. Uh, maybe you know more, but I have been to a PCA where um, they do have lay men and women that uh, that go up and read scripture.
0: It happens in a lot of Churches and some of it depends on the occasion, right? So if you're talking about like a special, like a, like around Christmas, and there's like an Advent reading and the candle, the churches that do those, sometimes like a family will come up and read, or you know, so it's a little more. It's not the everyday what we do every Sunday kind of thing that I've seen. Although I do know there are other there are PCA churches that are more um have have more uh, flexibility in what they. Or they're comfortable with.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. I, if you haven't listened to our episodes with Elise and Eric and both of our episodes with Amy that we've had in the last uh, couple of months, uh, we did talk about some of these things in, in both of those episodes. Because so often the question is, what can a woman do? Uh, and one of the things we talked about is that the better question is, what should lay people do in the church? Um, instead of just what what can a there woman do? There are a couple
0: do? reports, and, I, and we'll um, I think we'll, we should include them. The, the PCA has their um, study committee on women that was from a couple years ago, and the OPC has a similar. It was done earlier, but a similar stat, uh, statement or study paper on on the issue of women, and I think both of those are are good ones to read to kind of get um, an idea of what's going on in some of the discussions in Presbyterian churches about men and women in the church, while absolutely holding to, um, you know, the ordained offices of elder um, deacon being men, um, what some of the other discussions are. Um, so, I recommend those both. Yeah, we'll link all of that.
1: Anything that will be helpful to any of the questions that uh, that we address today, I'll link in the episode notes. Uh, I don't know that… I think that upcoming, Rachel and I have some different topics that we would like to do. I don't know that it'll be a series necessarily for a little while, but if there are any just topics you'd like us to do an episode on, feel free to email us at theologygals at gmail.com. It's it's always helpful for us uh, getting episode ideas that our listeners would like to hear. Um, And we are going to be upcoming... I know we're going to be doing an episode on grief, and then we're kind of figuring out uh, where to go from there. So, this is a good time to to send us some topic suggestions. So, I hope this was helpful. I've really enjoyed doing this series on the church with you, Rachel. Yeah, I have too. It's been a good a good series. So, alrighty. Well, I know it's a shorter episode, but we did get to
0: all the questions that came in. So, we'll see you next week.